I never thought I'd say this, but I want boring politics. I want back to, you know, the equivalent in the U.S. of discussing, you know, Obama's tan suit and being this sort of very banal, you know, meaningless discussion versus, you know, is democracy going to survive in the next month? So cheers for boring politics. It means things are doing well. That's Dr. Deborah Farias, Brazilian political scientist teaching at the University of New South Wales. And we're talking about the convulsions in the world's fourth largest democracy. In a deeply divided election, Lula's supporters here say they're not just voting for his policies, but for the future of Brazilian democracy. Deborah, welcome. So good to talk to you. You're a Brazilian political scientist. Uh, you've lived in several federations and now you've lived in Australia for the last five years. So looking back to Brazil from Australia, what did you think about the assault on the capital and the presidential buildings in Brasilia on the 8th of January? Well, as you can imagine, I because of the time zone, it meant that I woke up to all of my social media's blasting and me in bed trying to scramble and understand what was going on because it was still in the thick of it. Breaking situation in Brazil, thousands of supporters of ousted former President Bolsonaro storming the presidential and congressional buildings, demanding he be restored to power. I had just been in Brasilia in late November. So it was just very strange and very odd and very disturbing, I think, to see what was going on. Riot police confronting demonstrators outside, firing tear gas. Officials say extra police have been mobilized to try to bring order. Some protesters ransacking offices, others appearing to steal equipment and calling for the military to intervene and overturn the election Bolsonaro lost. It didn't come so much as a shock because I think most Brazilians who were following the election closely were not surprised that something would happen. I think we just didn't know what would happen and when. Bolsonaro's false claims of fraud, the driving force behind today's violence. What gave rise to Bolsonaro? How did this populist, this COVID-denying, climate change-denying right-wing figure, how did he get in control of such an enormous democracy? Yes, that is one of the things that I think um, all, well, most Brazilian political scientists are investigating. But so there's a lot of parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump um, in terms of populism, in terms of how they approach their role pretty much as a savior. They put themselves as anti-politics, as people who say it like it is. But there's one thing that makes Bolsonaro really quite different than Trump, and that is Bolsonaro has been in Brazilian politics, had been for 28 years before he was um, elected president. He had been in the military. The story that goes is that he was expelled from the military. But in any case, he spent 28 years in politics, starting first regionally in the state of Rio and then becoming um, a federal congressman for over 20 years. Now, during his time as a federal congressman, he was always considered, uh, he, he only had in almost 30 years, only I think two projects that were really mediocre. So he twisted things to make all of his mediocre um, 20 plus years as um, a, a congressman. He made that into 
a, you know, he was a fighter for the people. He didn't accept things. So when he ran, um, he already ran on this record. But sort of a record of doing nothing. With a record of doing nothing. But, but, but how does a guy who has been in politics for 30 years and not very successfully then reinvent himself or did he reinvent himself to do things sufficiently differently to win as a populist candidate? So here are a couple of numbers that I think help to illustrate one thing that gets missed, which is 2018, which was when we had the election in Brazil in October, 2018 was already primed to have a candidate like him, not necessarily him. I'll give you here just a couple of numbers. There's a um, there's an organization called uh, Latino Barometro. So they do polls all around Latin America in politics. They did one in Brazil when, so just to give you context, in 2009, they asked, are you very, are you satisfied with your country's democracy? The answers for very well or well, 2009, were 49%. So about half of the population saying we're satisfied. 49%, 2009. You go to 2018, about 10 years later, that number had dropped to 9%. Nine. So what caused it to drop to 9%? It was- Was this the corruption under Dilma, the successor to Lula? Um, it started to go down with Dilma took over the presidency in 2011 and only 34% of Brazilians agreed that democracy was the best way of governing a country. So, so just over a third of Brazilians in 2018 believed democracy was the best way to run and so roughly two-thirds would have been happy with the dictatorship of some kind. Yes. So the other options was essentially I would accept some level of autocracy or, you know, authoritarianism. Um, or for people like me, it doesn't matter. So these are people who are really disillusioned. So I honestly think that it wasn't just because Bolsonaro came with this particular kind of rhetoric, but he came at a time when a lot of people were willing to give a chance to someone who was not part of the status quo. To what extent was Bolsonaro's rise enabled by and sustained by disinformation, you know, just spreading craziness and conspiracy theories and so forth uh, on social and other media? So in social media, social media has played a fundamental role in Bolsonaro's campaign and in Bolsonaro's tenure and even now. And that's something that when you look at the research on populism, it tends to be quite typical with populists. But there's also another angle where I think that misinformation was really embraced, right? Because you can say many crazy things, you can say many fake things, but if your audience is not responsive, it doesn't really work. Now, Bolsonaro also represents something that was unique in Brazil, and that was historically for presidential campaigns. You're talking about left and right, but it's very much from the traditional economic third world perspective. More privatization, less privatization, closer to the United States, um, closer to third world countries. So that had been the typical dynamic and pretty much even right and left had been centrist in most ways. But we've never had until Bolsonaro someone seeking the executive position that put, um, let's say, social issues at hand. So things like religion, abortion, um, homosexuality, all of these things that 
typically weren't really part of the big discussion. And Bolsonaro really incorporated this very, very conservative group, especially in Brazil, Brazilian evangelicals. Evangelicals are still a relative minority in Brazil. Something like 60% of the country is Catholic and about a third is um, evangelicals. Now, what has happened is that folks who are really much more on the conservative side, they, they have been frustrated. And some of them have migrated into evangelical churches where you have a more... I can say this, a more hardcore interpretation of the, the, the Bible. There's a lot more black and white and, you know, there's a lot more sins that you have to look after, but it's also become a business that are essentially like franchises. You open them up, you ask people to give uh, money, you manipulate them to give money. So you're really going um, after the, the people who are really poor with the doctrine of prosperity and saying, look, if you give me 10%, 20% of everything you have, God is going to pay afterwards. God, I need God a new wants jet. You to be, God wants you to be rich. Yes, and Again, I need a new rather jet. rather overlooking the direct <laughs> messages in the Gospels. Yeah. Exactly. And the, these evangelical churches, um, they also benefited from Bolsonaro's approach because they knew that Bolsonaro would give all these advantages to them. So they also began to preach in the churches and, and, and also helping to spread the message. For example, um, Lula's going to close all churches. Lula has a pact with the devil. And then you come, come with someone. Bolsonaro's middle name is uh, Messias, which is Messiah. Jair Messias Bolsonaro. And he played on that. And a lot of people use that to say he is the Messiah. Confidence in Brazilian democracy plummeted in the decade leading up to Bolsonaro's election. By 2018, only 9% of Brazilians were satisfied with democracy as a system. The population, dissatisfied with extensive corruption and disappointment with politics, was primed to give an anti-establishment candidate like Jair Bolsonaro a go. Brazil shares with Australia compulsory voting and an independent electoral commission, features that I would have expected to protect democracy against far-right populists like Jair Bolsonaro. But we also share the lies and disinformation, or at least some of them, designed to undermine the integrity of our electoral system. I think we're in a bit of trouble. That's Australian Electoral Commissioner Tom Rogers. In the recent federal election, the Australian Electoral Commission actively countered disinformation, including on social media. But the AEC is only authorised to deal with disinformation about the electoral system itself. How to vote, where to vote, how the system works and so on. They have no role in responding to general political lies and misinformation about candidates, parties or policies. Um, it's interesting. I've been at the Commission for a while and this last federal election we saw more missing disinformation than we've ever seen at any federal election. We're seeing that internationally as well uh, without going to specific countries. It's a problem, I think, and uh, I'm not sure that any democracies yet got it sorted for the answer. You're focused on attacks on the, the reputation or the integrity of the electoral system. Can absolutely. you just unpack that? Mm, absolutely. You know, I remember reading, um, I think it was in the 1600s, King Charles uh, closed down coffee shops in London because he was annoyed about sort of what he would call fake news, I guess, uh, back then. So this has been with us forever. Not our concern. And um, interestingly, we ran a campaign the last two elections called Stop and Consider. Mm. 
and it was to, designed to try and help Australians think about the source of information. But when we when we first developed it, even some of my staff said, "Oh, right, it's stop and consider the message." And my point is that elections are a contest of ideas. There's been um, different viewpoints forever. Our bit is to defend the integrity of the system itself, the act of voting, uh, the integrity of the voting system. And so we we spend an inordinate amount of time focused on that. Sometimes that annoys people because they see what they believe is, you know, fake information or misinformation, and they say, why isn't the AEC dealing with this? Um, but what we say is a contest of ideas, uh, one person's truth at election time can be another person's mistruth. Um, so we really focus on that bit about the electoral process itself. So your job is to administer the election process but also to defend the integrity and the reputation of the electoral system? Uh, 100%. What sort of attacks have we seen in Australia on the integrity of our election system and what did you do to rebut those attacks? Mm. Really interesting. Um, We saw a lot of stuff trying to equate uh, overseas voting processes with Australia at the last election. If I might use an example, um, I think in parts of the US they use voting machines called Dominion voting machines. We don't use any voting machines in Australia. We just We don't do it. We've never used specifically any Dominion voting machines. That didn't stop that becoming a conspiracy theory that ran through the Australian election uh, with, a, with a small pocket of individuals. We took that on head on, not only through our media, uh, through our social media, but we developed a thing called AEC TV. We put on well over 100 videos. Uh, they're really short, two to three minute videos where we debunk things or we provide extra information. We got well over a million views just on those. One way that we tried to provide facts, we think that if we don't put facts out there about the electoral system, other people fill the void with their own version of facts. Brazil's Supreme Electoral Court also aggressively went after disinformation where the volume and velocity dwarfed that of Australia's experience. I think what in Brazil happened was a much bigger concern with lies that were being said that weren't just related to the election itself. So in Brazil, the the electoral court went really heavy on very, with people that were, you know, politicians or people who had millions of followers saying, oh, the election was rigged and all of that saying this is illegal. But there was also a lot of pressure and a lot of policy attempts to try to minimize the impact of purely fake news. And from what I hear in Australia, it doesn't seem that you're there yet in this concern. And I think in Brazil, we weren't really at that level of concern also until Bolsonaro ran. Yeah, I I think the the situation in Australia is our electoral legislation makes it Uh, unlawful to publish misleading information about the electoral process. So if you were to say in a federal election you don't have to number every square or, you know, the polling day is on Sunday, not Saturday, Uh, if if you're creating misinformation about the electoral system, the Electoral Commission can Mm -hmm. respond to that. But if a, you know, if a candidate says, you know, my opponent is a liar and a thief or, you know, has two heads or is a... Satanist, that, that that is not a matter for the Electoral Commission. It may be a matter for defamation law and yes. other, other areas, but it's not a matter for the Electoral Commission. But here's the challenge. What if you end up, and I think this is the point that 
any democracy needs to think about this. What happens if you have a candidate who is willing to say anything to get elected? Brazilians are one of the biggest users of WhatsApp yep. in the world. Something like more than 90% of Brazilians use WhatsApp. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a massive, massive number. And WhatsApp, the communication is one-to-one -one and it's encrypted. So you yeah. can't really go and be interfering. Now, one of the things that was done in this prior election was I think the Superior Court, um, Electoral Court, I think they ended up negotiating with um, WhatsApp for example, to limit, so WhatsApp introduced something now in 2023 in Brazil, which is you can have groups with like thousands of people. This was only introduced now because there was a discussion to not implement this particular option before the election, because the concern was, well, you can spread misinformation a lot faster. Disinformation spread through social media applications and particularly through direct messaging like WhatsApp, is having an enormous impact on democracy, especially when it's designed to undermine trust in the democratic system. So far, Australia is proving resilient. I think we're probably the first electoral management body that visited all the social media companies in Silicon Valley, but also uh, Tencent, um, which I think is based in Shenzhen in China, the polling company for WeChat, for example, to lay out what our expectations were. And before this last election, um, we did something similar by getting a protocol in place with the major social media companies and establishing relationships so we could get stuff taken down relatively quickly. Our research after the last election showed that nine out of 10 Australians trust the AEC to deliver a solid electoral result. It's an extraordinary thing. If you think about what's occurring globally, and even in Australia, you know, the sort of social media brouhaha about most things, the fact that we've been able to maintain that uh, is fantastic. I think it's a success story that we should be talking about more. I asked Deborah what her advice was to Australians who are concerned about their democracy. Don't underestimate what could happen because I think Brazilians, if you asked them eight years ago, we would never have imagined. I'm like, no, Brazil has its problems, but we never have something like that. So I think the same in the United States also happens. So it's don't underestimate the, the bad things that can happen because they can Don't take democracy for granted. Don't take it for granted. And don't assume that people will naturally know how to separate, you know, blatant lies from um, truth. So I think it's really this important message of, of vigilance, um, not paranoia, but vigilance that it's, it's something that you, democracy you have to cultivate. It's not something that we have democracy, you know, all good, we're done. The system is fine and it's going to run. It needs constant attention because there are people who are interested in gaining from a demise of democracy. And given the chance, they will pounce on it. Former British Prime Minister Theresa May joins me next on the podcast. One of the issues for populism, because many people have felt perhaps that the politicians in charge, their governments haven't been delivering for them on the issues that they really cared about. 
podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. Listener.